This is Adapted with Anna and Sam. We love books and we love movies. Warning, here be spoilers. Welcome to Adapted with Anna and Sam. I'm Sam. And I'm Anna. In this podcast, we talk about a book. We talk about a movie or TV show based on that book. We play some fun games. And we encourage you to read and watch along with us. Today, we will be talking about Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, I think, is actually a great choice for our first episode because it might be the perfect example of a well-done adaptation. This is definitely one of those things where I can both reread the book and watch the movie more than I should. (laughs) Anna, why don't you give us your book report on Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. So full disclosure, I have seen the movie Jurassic Park a lot in the last 20 years since it came out. And so reading the book for the first time this week was really interesting because I know the movie so well already. And so I couldn't help comparing scene by scene as I read. The book starts slowly, and Costa Rica unrelated hospital workers and vacationers encounter strange bites from an unidentified lizard. Gradually, we learn that the animal is, although everyone knows this is impossible, a small dinosaur. And since the title of the book is Jurassic Park, I think the readers are probably a few steps ahead of the characters at this point. It is a slower build in the film with, I feel, a less potent reveal, but the basic premise is the same. Eccentric millionaire John Hammond has bought an island, cloned and grown dinosaurs to populate that island, and is planning on turning it into the next Disneyland. Hammond's park isn't complete yet, and it's already in trouble. To ease his investors, a team of consultants and experts have arrived for the weekend to review the park. Paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant, paleobotanist Dr. Ellie Sadler, mathematician Ian Malcolm, and representing the investors' legal counsel Donald Gennaro. Meanwhile, the ultimate nerd, Dennis Nedry, is the computer systems designer who created the park, and he is plotting even more trouble. He's been meeting with a rival company and is promising them frozen dinosaur embryos in exchange for money because he thinks Hammond has been um, short-shrifting him. So Nedry is described as fat, slobbish, rude, sullen. He's clearly greedy. He has absolutely no redeeming qualities, so right away you know he's definitely biting it before the end. Um, When Hammond brings them all to the secluded island of Island Bar, our experts finally see their first dinosaur and are overcome by its beauty and by the nagging thought that this park may be a tiny bit dangerous. And then, because the real target market for this park is children, or more accurately, the children of the super rich, Hammond's own grandchildren show up to be the ultimate guinea pig. So all of this has been a long setup to get us to the park we've been waiting for, visiting and seeing some of these goddamn dinosaurs, which is then further delayed because the beginning of the tour is actually a behind-the-scenes of the cloning facility and the command room. And before he even sees the facilities, Ian Malcolm has dire but cryptic warnings. Chaos Theory says they will fail. He has graphs. Of course, if I was Ian Malcolm, I might say, I'm pretty sure all your planning is for crap. Your arrogance disgusts me. I'll see you on the mainland, where I can probably avoid being eaten by dinosaurs. But then I'm not a mathematician. Uh, Finally, the visitors, along with PR guy Ed Regis, load into two electric cars, 1989 electric cars, whoa, and head into the park. And of course, things pick up and immediately go wrong. 
With a God's eye view of the tour and the whole park on their computer monitors are the men who made the park happen. Arnold, the engineer, Dr. Wu, the brilliant geneticist, and safari hunter and animal expert Muldoon, who give us all the context for what our visitors are encountering. As Malcolm predicted, things go wrong. A hurricane hits the island at the same time that Nedry sabotages the computer system, and all their safety parameters, including the electrified fence, go down. Suddenly, it's man versus dinosaur, or more accurately, man versus 10-year-old. Tim Murphy evades a T-Rex, escapes a car crashing out of a tree, rescues his abandoned little sister, all before any grown-up bothers to find him. Go, Timmy. He actually is the true hero of the book. He really is. Once the kids team up with Dr. Grant, they have to make their way back to the relative security of the main compound. This means evading the T-Rex multiple times, a river raft ride past dive-bombing pterodactyls, going over a waterfall, and hordes of velociraptors. Meanwhile, the team at base are trying to get the park back online and are having several run-ins with the deadly velociraptors of their own. It's great action on both sides, interspersed with lengthy diatribes from the mathematician in black, Ian Malcolm, high on morphine after being written by the T-Rex, and acting as the author's mouthpiece with warnings of unchecked scientific progress with no thought to the consequences of discovery. This is one of Crichton's underlying, or really overlying, themes of the book, and there are fair points to be made, but it gets more and more difficult to take it seriously when Malcolm is spouting these lectures while velociraptors are chewing their way through steel bars to get to him, and his companions nod their heads and say, oh, yes, interesting. Mm. I mean, what else do you do when you're high on morphine and the velociraptors are trying <laughs> I mean, to get you? I mean, next time I'm high on morphine and being attacked by velociraptors, we'll see. Um, of course, Malcolm is right. Hubris built Jurassic Park, and it falls spectacularly. In the end, everyone but John Hammond sees it. Hammond suffers from a fatal case of affluenza, throwing cash at the most brilliant experts in their field, and then ignoring them and accusing them of a lack of vision when they disagree with him. Inevitably, the four men most responsible for the creation of the park must pay for their sin. Dr. Wu and Arnold are eaten by velociraptors, attempting to bring the park back online and save the remaining humans on the island. Not that those deaths aren't brutal, but it is preferable to the way that Hammond and Nedry go. The most humiliating deaths are reserved for the greedy. Nedry, the betrayer, is paralyzed by a spitting dinosaur and eaten alive. And Hammond dies of bad timing, a twisted ankle, and also being eaten alive, this time by the bottom feeders of the dinosaur food chain, whose main purpose on Isla Nubar is to eat other dinosaurs' poop. Yum. Yeah. Malcolm dies in the end as well. He is the voice of reason after all, and the allegory would not be complete without Hammond and his kind getting the voice of reason killed with their meddling with nature. Poor Cassandra, no one listens to him. Malcolm's death, however, is peaceful, gentle. He drifts off on a wave of morphine, and only after boring every single person around him for pages and pages about how they aren't as cool as Isaac Newton. And while I haven't read it, apparently he comes back to life in the Lost World. Well, because he was really popular in the movie, and so then when Crichton wrote the sequel, yeah. he was like, well, we have to bring him back. Of course. Of course. And it goes without saying, it's a very different interpretation of the character, but I will let Sam talk about that. Um, from the balcony, Sam, tell us a little about the movie. Uh, Jurassic Park was released all the way back in 1993. I cannot believe it's already been so long. I remember going to the theater and watching it through my fingers. <laughs> I was that scared of it. Um, it was directed by Steven Spielberg, and it starred Sam Neill as Dr. Alan Grant, yum. Laura Dern as Dr. Ellie Sattler, also Jeff yum. Goldblum as Jeff Goldblum, I mean Dr. Ian Malcolm, <laughs> Richard Attenborough as John Hammond, and this was actually uh, Richard Attenborough's first acting role since 1979, so way to go Steven Spielberg. Um, and then Bob Peck as Robert Muldoon, Samuel L. Jackson, before he was Samuel, oh, Samuel L. Jackson, L. Jackson, as John Arnold, and G.D.B.D. D. Wong as <sighs> Dr. Henry Wu. 
who isn't allowed to actually shine until Jurassic World, but we won't be talking about that today. Other characters include Tim and Lex. They are played by Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards, uh, respectively. Nedry, who is played by Wayne Knight of Seinfeld fame. Uh, Those are the only two things he's known for. Yes, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, Gennaro, the lawyer, who is played by Martin Ferraro. And the guy at the mine, who is played by Miguel Sandoval, who shows up in every other thing you've ever seen. He's ubiquitous. He really is. Um, But he was also created for the movie, so they needed needed him. Mm -hmm. Um, So Jurassic Park the movie opens on a dark and stormy night with worker men types who are trying to unload some type of lizard clearly a dinosaur because it's Jurassic Park. It's Jurassic Park. It's in the title. And it later turns out to be a nasty, nasty velociraptor, but we don't know that yet. And they're trying to load the, the dinosaur into an enclosure. The scene ends with the dinosaur killing the gatekeeper and Muldoon, the, you know, Robert Muldoon, uh, shouting the first of his numerous iconic lines, shoot ha! Shoot ha! Next up, we arrive at an amber mine, which is an br- entirely brand new scene, um, with Gennaro the lawyer, He's, he's being pulled on a raft because that's what you do. And we learn here that Alan Grant is a digger. And also there's going to be an inspection of the park because, hello, worker died. Kind of a big deal. Now we hop over to an archaeological dig to meet Alan Grant, the paleontologist, and Ellie Sattler, the paleobotanist, as they are bribed by John Hammond to come spend the weekend at his new biological preserve. Uh, in this scene, this is where Grant describes how an adult velociraptor actually kills and eats his prey and scares the crap out of the most obnoxious kid ever. So it's kind of a good scene. And then we're over to San Jose where we meet Newman, I mean Dennis Nedry, the computer geek, who plans to sell embryos to some guy named Dodgson because Nedry is under, under, underappreciated and definitely underpaid. And then after a brief helicopter ride where we meet Jeff Goldblum, I mean Ian Malcolm, being full-on Jeff Goldblum, we finally land on the island and see dinosaurs! Yay! The moment we've all been waiting for. But of course, Dr. Sattler is stuck staring at an extinct plant because botany. Botany. It's the worst. The scientist, lawyer, and Hammond then tour the labs, and this is where we meet John Arnold and Dr. Wu. And we also watch a velociraptor hatch where you flash from Dr. Grant's unhappy face to everybody standing outside the Velociraptor cage and Muldoon walking up intoning iconic line number two, they should all be destroyed. After a meal and lots of discussion against the park, Grant, Malcolm, Sattler, and Gennaro are joined by Hammond's grandkids, Lex and Tim, for a tour of the park itself. On the tour, the only dinosaur actually seen by everyone is a sick triceratops. And honestly, it's a great scene. It's like, it's an actual animatronic triceratops that everybody gets to interact with, and it's it was really moving when I first saw it. I was like, I want to go play. But I didn't. On the tour, the only dinosaur seen is a sick triceratops. So, And then um, there's a big clap of thunder, and Sattler stays behind with a vet, and everybody else gets back into the cars to head back to the visitor center. It is now storming heavily. Nedry causes the power to go out all over the park as he runs away to steal his embryos for this guy named Dodgson. Grant, Malcolm, Gennaro, Lex, and Tim get stuck by the Tyrannosaur paddock. The Tyrannosaur gets out and attacks the cars, killing Gennaro and hurting Malcolm. Tim ends up in the car in a tree, and he is then rescued by Grant and kind of Lex. She's actually sitting in a pipe, but we don't care. Nedry drives into the storm but gets lost, and then he's eaten by a Dilophosaurus. Whoopsie! Kind of a bad end. And there's this iconic shot where the he's, you know, kind of put his embryos in a can of, of shaving cream and it falls out of his pocket and rolls down and then it's covered in mud and you're like, is that foreshadowing to another movie? 
technically, <laughs> not at the time, but in the end, yes. Muldoon and Sattler drive to the T-Rex paddock to bring Grant and everyone back to the visitor centers, but instead find one car missing parts of Gennaro and an injured Malcolm. Sattler then finds the other car at the end, bottom of a tree in the T-Rex enclosure, but no one in it. Muldoon shines his light around and finds footprints leading into the park. Tim, Lex, and Grant work their way through the park and encounter numerous dinosaurs, including a herd of Gallimimus, as they're being chased by the T-Rex. Because that's fun. They make it all the way to the fence, which is still off. In the meantime, Sattler, Hammond, Muldoon, Arnold, and Jeff Goldblum work to bring the power back on. But to do that, they have to shut everything down, which also in the end turns off the velociraptor fences, and that's just a big no-no. Arnold gets eaten trying to turn the power back on, so Muldoon and Sattler try. Muldoon then gets eaten as well, but not before uttering iconic line number three, Clever girl. Clever girl. Oh, the memes that were born out of that line. I say that to my to my kid all the time. Maybe Clever you should girl. change that up, because she's not really a velociraptor. She says you. <laughs> Uh, Sattler succeeds in turning on the power, but Tim gets electrocuted as a result because he is too slow to climb down the fence despite the ragging by his sister. Grant leaves Lex and Tim at the visitor center, meets Sattler, and joins Hammond and Malcolm in the bunker where they plan to hunt down the velociraptors and boot up the computer system. Lex and Tim end up fighting two velociraptors in the kitchen. They can open doors, you guys. But then they end up locking one in the freezer. So it all works out. Grant and Sattler run into the kids and they head to the control room. They fight the remaining two velociraptors while Lex tries to boot up the computer system. Girl nerd power! She succeeds, but the velociraptors break in and they have to escape through the vents. And apparently, I just read on IMDb trivia, the the letters on the velociraptor's face are actually supposed to be from the monitor and not from the vents. Yes. And I was like, but that's not, that's, monitors don't work that way, like your husband said. And But if, for those of you who don't know, the letters that there are, those are the four proteins in a DNA strand. Yeah. C-T-A-G. G. Yeah. Grant, Sattler, and the kids end up in the main hall of the visitor center, and it seems like the velociraptors will win when Deus Ex Tyrannosaur arrives and kills the velociraptors. Grant, Sattler, Lex, Tim, Hammond, and Malcolm escape to the helicopter and we soar away while watching pelicans fly alongside in kind of a hit your head over, hit yourself over the head moment about nature. Final body count is Gatekeeper, Gennaro, Nedry, and Arnold. So I actually had a little bit of trouble coming up with the final body part for the book because there's people who die who aren't named. Yes. Um, at one point, they say nine people have died so far, but that didn't match the number of people I had because I think there's some like random poor like Costa Ricans who are working on this island are getting poor Costa Ricans because in the movie they make it clear it's like a skeleton crew people apparently get to go home for the weekend on this island I don't understand how that like that's not how zoo works yeah uh yeah the animals still need to be fed on the weekends people still work there on the weekends (laughs) but um but I think the death toll for the book is a is 11 or 12 is my best that's pretty high for a book it is it is definitely double what the movie is yes the movie like the movie gets away with sending everyone away, and you don't ask too many questions about it. Yeah, and I mean, after seeing it like 20 times, I'm like, wait, how are they planning on doing this? Hmm. Like, really? Everyone who works in the genetics lab left? Yeah. The eggs, like, don't need any no. monitoring at all? It, Interesting. They've got that, that robotic arm that turns the eggs. Yeah, that yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> in the beginning of the book, it's mentioned that several workers were killed, so I believe it's three. There was a newborn who gets eaten 
uh, on the mainland, which is actually never really have horrible. babies apparently near that island. Um, and there's a whole character who isn't in the movie, who is the PR guy, Ed Regis, and he's kind of in the movie. He's a mix of um, the lawyer Gennaro and, uh, or in the movie, it's a mix of the lawyer Gennaro and and Ed Regis is combined into Gennaro because Ed yes. Regis dies the way Gennaro does. Yes. Um, in the movie, and it makes me wonder. I think there's some. Uh, subtext there to to the creators i think michael crichton has a pr guy he really hated apparently i think spielberg has something against lawyers <laughs> remember in the movie hook it's yes, like the whole like kill the lawyer like, thing yes and like I think peter spielberg, banning was a lawyer and yeah, i don't think spielberg likes lawyers no you know it wouldn't surprise me i wonder if he got sued like as one of his earlier movies or something like that he mu- i mean everyone yeah. i'm sure has some reaction to it oh i'm sure so it's and it's very interesting because i think you and i are in the same position we've I've seen the movie so many times. Yes. Um, it's very hard not to always look to that as canon. But, yes. um, but it's not. The book came first. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's actually really funny. Um, the book wasn't even published yet before they bought the rights to the mo- for the movie. And so they started working on the movie before the book had actually been published. But they were so sure that the book was going to do well that they just wanted to make it a movie to kind of capitalize on that. And it... It turned out to be true. Like the book that was is a super good prediction. popular. Yeah, yeah. And it actually increased in, in interest in paleontology as a result as well. Well, I mean, those dinosaurs aren't going to dig themselves up. No, no, they're not. So. <laughs> Do you want to play some games? Sure. Should we start with heartthrobs and hairdos? Yes. So it is time for our first game, Heartthrobs and Hairdos. Oh, man. My first thing was, clearly Sam Neill is yet again the heartthrob you never knew you needed. I am actually less entranced by Sam Neill as I am by B.D. Wong. Oh, yes. But it's a little unfair because B.D. Wong has, like, two minutes of screen time. He is... Which is unfair because in the book, the character is actually much mm-hmm. bigger. Dr. Wu is there. Yep. He's got a lot of opinions and a backstory. Yep. And I feel like he's also like one of the few moral voices of the book who actually kind of not only changes perspective, but kind of like understands where Malcolm is coming from. I guess. I think, I think Dr. Wu and to some extent John Arnold as well are they're at fault because they helped to create this Frankenstein park Mm -hmm. that then turns on them. But yeah, I agree. Dr. Wu does, he does see the problems and he is more realistic, but I think he's ultimately guilty of the great sin that, that Malcolm and Crichton are warning us of that unchecked scientific exploration is just um, dangerous. Mm, And, you know, we're not, we're not actually making the world better by this, continual strides to discovery were just causing chaos and harm mm-hmm. um you know Crichton likens all of this genetic experimentation to the nuclear age in the 1950s and 60s and there's still I mean, literal fallout <laughs> there's still literal fallout from that I mean and yes. you know it's funny we don't even think about it today but there are you know, we're dealing with things like Monsanto, like all of the genetically yep. um, modified food that we don't even realize we're eating. It's not yeah. di- it's not dinosaurs. No. The dinosaurs are a metaphor. Right. Well, and also, like, now in this day and age, like, you know, genetics, ge- bioengineering was so new when Michael Crichton was writing this book. I think not even he could have imagined to what we're doing with it now. So I was just reading an article the other day about how there, there's... Um, there's scientists in California at UC Davis who are trying to grow 
human organs in pigs and sheep. That doesn't surprise me. And like they have to be, they, they, when they grow the organs in these pigs, they can't actually then use the pigs for anything. They can't, they can't slaughter them and, and turn them into food. They can't use the fat because there's a, an element of humanity in them. And so, so they can kill them and take their organs. Right. But they can't actually then make use of the rest of the pig because they might have a human cell and then you would turn us all into cannibals. So it's just like, but like, you know, Michael Crichton, I think would have been appalled at like how we're just, we're doing all of these things and we're He's not really. He's still alive, right? Michael Crichton? Yeah. No, he died. Oh, so we can't ask him. Yeah, no. <laughs> I should have I done that research as part of my book report. Um, but we got a little away from heartthrobs. Yeah, so, so sorry, we, sorry. We missed sorry. like kind of the main heartthrob. I mean, he was next on my list. So, well, all right. So here's the thing. I think if you were to ask Jeff Goldblum, he would say he is the main heartthrob. <laughs> and I'm very torn, actually, because on the one hand, like, I mean, the, there's there's something very attractive about Jeff Goldblum, but also off-putting. Yes. And I think his own confidence is part of the off-puttingness. Yeah. I would, yeah. I mean, and honestly, like... In this movie, at least, um, Jeff Goldblum's chest, I think, should take home the award of David's Bo- of David Bowie's package. Yes, the David Bowie's package award goes Jeff Goldblum's chest. It's like at you first see him and his shirt is unbuttoned halfway, and then you know it mysteriously and magically just opens all the way More to his navel, carefully by the T Rex. She she it's a it's a it's, it's a, a female dinosaur. They tell it's us very carefully. <laughs> Do you, do you look up the dinosaur skirts? <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, how can you be so creepy talking about dinosaurs? Oh, God, but yeah, it just no. makes It makes it so weird. Yeah, but there is, there is something charismatic about Jeff Goldblum, especially in this role. Yes. Where you're like, what is wrong with me? And I don't get that vibe at all from the book. No. So that's all no. Goldblum bringing it to the character. Yeah. It's like, from the book, it's like Dr. Malcolm is like this crusty, middle-aged man. Who's he's just 35. Like but that's how he comes across. No, he's 35. That's not middle-aged, Sam. No, but that's how he comes I'm across. I'm 35. I am too. So how is that middle-aged? I'm, I'm not saying he like is middle-aged. He comes across as a middle-aged man. All right. Well, we'll have to just disagree, to <laughs> agree to disagree on that one. So unfortunately, there aren't too many hairdos. No, no. We can talk about here because because. All right, can we talk about Sattler's hairdo though? In and how movie? perfect it is in in the movie. Yeah, her hair is like magically clean. Okay, clean, but like at like there's in one moment like bef- like I'm not sure if it's after the Raptors or before, but it's like half of it is still up and the front half is down in a very like pleasing way. And I'm just like I'm like, how is your hair first of all still so clean and blonde? And, like, also, how is the back still up? You've gone through all of this trauma. Yeah, it is it is too perfect. It really is. So, Ellie, Ellie Sattler is a great character. I actually think she is... I like her better in the movie in the than movie. in the book. In oh, the movie, definitely. she's got more to do. Yeah. But in the movie, she is romantically paired with a man 20 years her senior. Mm-hmm. And in the book, it's but, made very clear mm-hmm. they are and just colleagues. Exactly. She's got someone else on the side. She's fiance. got she's she's got a fiance. There's yeah. no interest there. So it's very and it's funny we were rewatching this um and my husband is watching it with us and Sam and I are trying to convince him that Dr. Dr. Sattler and Dr. Grant are a couple in the movie and he's like no they're not. They have no chemistry. It's like he just she just called him honey and he's like yeah they're 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 chums like honey. No. Like 
she keeps talking about having kids and how he doesn't want them. Yeah, she keeps doing like the the, the and like the he's touches. still he's still like, well, no, that's like that's just something you say with your friends, like just because there's so there's so little like chemistry and like yes. so little romantic interaction. But yeah, they're like, their yeah. their relationship is kind of slapped on. Exactly, it's like you you like make pairing them up as a couple does nothing to advance the storyline. It does and nothing. It's, it's actually unnecessary because. It's not a romantic book, and, like, they don't actually play it up in any way right. to make it worthwhile. I don't think we ever see them kiss. Like, no. when they wrote, when they finally find each other again after all of their harrowing adventures, like, actually, they're still running from dinosaurs, yeah. so it's probably not a good time to stop and kiss. Well, but... no, but, I mean, she, like, she jumps on him and gives him that big hug. Like, that would have been the perfect, like, in any other movie, like, say, directed by, like, Brett Ratner or some other Oh, uh, well, she probably would have had she a would have been like, too, <laughs> if it was that. Yeah, they would have, like, been sucking face for, like, five minutes. So... Other than, though, that kind of unnecessary romance, Ellie Sattler is, like, She's a fantastic amazing. female character. Yeah. It's it's a shame this movie does not um, have more good female yes. characters. Um, but she is she is great. She is smart. She's capable. Yep. And she does not put up with any BS. Exactly. Um, and they also do some fun things for Lex, the, yes, the, girl. the girl. So in the book, uh, Tim Murphy is the older of the two siblings, and Lex is... She's, like, into sports but she's and useless. arguing with people. Yeah. She's so useless, and all she does is, like, cause trouble for Timmy and for Dr. Grant. And in the movie, she has the computer skills. Mm -hmm. And even though she does, like, a lot of screaming, honestly, I would scream, too. Oh, yeah. And when it, like, when it comes down to it, like, she actually saves the day yep. by figuring out how to work the computer. She, so, she stays cool under the pressure of, like, being like, oh, my God, I need to solve this puzzle so yeah. that we can get off this island. She also, uh, when they're in the kitchen, when they're being attacked by two velociraptors, she distracts the velociraptor to get them away from her brother. So mm -hmm. she, I mean, she does... She steps up. She's brave. Yep. So even though there isn't a great ratio of male to female, um, I will say that the women in the movie are... are yeah. They got some girl power. Yeah. Um, we can't really talk about fun period costumes in this no. movie, though. No, we I can't. Mean, we can talk about how somehow Dr. Sattler's clothes are way too clean. Still. After all, like, After she, all like, ran through the mud, both to and from the power place, and, but like, not a drop on perfect. her. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I wish, I, I can't even get through a day without getting something on me. You know how, like, those women... I just don't wear white ever. <laughs> but, like, that, <laughs> it's not even, like, the white. It's, like, it, like, I mean, my purse is stained from my jeans. It's, like, I, I can't... I how, just... how did your jeans stain your purse? Uh, maybe they got wet. I don't. I don't. Oh, know. like the blue from your jeans yeah, went into your purse. Yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> I can't even like get through that. We need we need like professional stylists to come onto the dinosaur island with us. Apparently. So our next game is quizzes and questions. So let's uh, kick it off with my first question to you, All right. which is, if you could pick a line that only exists in the movie or the book, but not in the other, that is your favorite. What would it be? Oh, God. I want to say clever girl. That is probably going to be everyone's first response. Can I tell you what mine is, though? Of course. Hold on to your butts. Nice. Because oh, he says John it. Arnold. Because he says it twice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even like, hold on to your butts. It's hold on to your butts, wait five minutes, and then hold, hold on, on to your, your butts, butts again. <laughs> <laughs> and then you wonder, are you talking? Is he talking about the cigarette in his mouth or the actual fizzled oh, butt? Oh my goodness, I didn't even get that yeah. double entendre of yeah. the cigarette mm -hmm. butt. Oh, yeah, clever girl. 
(laughs) (laughs) All right. So my first question for you is, which version do you like better? Book Muldoon or Movie Muldoon? Because they are actually very different in my mind. Very different. I think I like Movie Muldoon better. Right? Um, Book Muldoon is a little gun happy. Mm-hmm. And He's kind of an alcoholic. Kind of an alcoholic. But he survives. Yes. Book Muldoon is just he's just not quite as or rather, Movie Muldoon is just like cool. Yeah. And he dies heroically. Exactly. Like, he's so... He has... There's no moral ambiguity with the movie Muldoon. No. He is... He's he's on the side of good. He is there to save the day. Yeah. He 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 knows what's good. He knows what's bad. And he, he he's always going for the good. I agree. And, like... But I think I would choose the book Muldoon myself. Only because there is that... Like, you don't get it at first, but then you get, like, the more he's, the more he is revealing of his character, or the more of that Crichton reveals of his character, the more you see, oh, he's really not this perfect big game hunter that, you know, he kind of touts himself to be. He's, he's got major flaws, Mm -hmm. you know, and he, in the book, at the end, he's basically telling Gennaro, like, no, this is all your fault. Get your ass down there. Oh, yeah, that was pretty great. And you're like, whoa. Where'd this come from, dude? Actually, so it's funny. The book has so much more action than the movie. Like, yes. They, more dinosaurs they cut out and a, more there's action. There's more dinosaurs. There's more action. And in the movie, it's like, well, they've made it back to the command center. They're safe. And in the book, that is not the case. There's yep. still more to do. I felt that part the most was the most thrilling for me to read because like I had no idea what was going to happen at that point. <laughs> like, the shape, the shape of the world that I knew had ended. And I'm like, what is going to happen now? And, you know, you have no idea at this point who's going to live or die because you know, I, I did know it was not going to be the same. Right. Um, and so when they went to the Velociraptor nest, that was actually one of my favorite parts of the book mm-hmm. because it was so unexpected. And, like, the discovery of the Velociraptor's behaviors. Yep. And, yeah, and the whole thing with, like, making Gennaro go down there. That whole thing I thought was a really well-written section. I really enjoyed it. Um, so, yeah, and, and it does display some good stuff. Well, we'll do a good call mm-hmm. there. All right, I have one more question for you, and it is what do you think, book or movie, is the saddest character death? Hmm. I think, I think Dr. Wu. Because I, he, like, we, we had talked about this a little earlier about, like, how, you know, he, like, he is one of the, he is one of the reasons that this place is happening and one of the, one of the things who is, like, at fault. Mm-hmm. But I feel like if he had gotten a little bit more time, he could have really helped make things right. But I think Crichton's point is that there was no making it right. It right. was wrong from and the beginning. And that's why Wu died. And, and that's so why like, Wu had to die. But I, and I think, like, that's another reason why it's so sad because it's, like, it's just so inevitable. Yeah. And you're, like, you can't, you can't fight it. You can't change it. But you're, like, there's got to be a way. Well, it's also really sad because Wu is so brilliant. Yeah. And you just, it, there's a lot of untapped potential there. Yeah. Yep. Um, do you want to play some fake awards? Yes, please. Okay. So we already gave the Jeff Goldblum award. I mean, it goes to Jeff Goldblum. It clearly. goes to Jeff Goldblum. Clearly. Um, I would like to give the award for most buttons bitten off of a shirt to the T-Rex. <laughs> Delicately with her teeth. Just a couple more buttons. All the way down to the belt. Oh, man. It's, it's her favorite. She loves <laughs> to do that. 
I mean, I wanted to give the best death to Movie Gennaro because he looks like he's on the toilet, but he's just wearing shorts. He's just, but he is literally hiding in the bathroom. <laughs> that is pretty true. Um, I also think that the best, uh, the award for best video presentation goes to the video presentation of the movie. Mr. DNA. With Mr. DNA. <laughs> And his pronunciation of dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so funny when that movie, the first time I saw that and I heard Richard Attenborough say DNA, I thought he was his, I thought he was saying Mr. And I was like, what did he say? Like, it didn't sound like DNA at all because of his Scottish accent. And I was like, <laughs> it took me forever to be like, oh, yeah, DNA. <laughs> I don't know. I can understand a Scottish accent enough to hear letters. I think you might have like a. I was, I was 10. Oh, okay. That explains it. Yeah. <laughs> I, that was my first Scottish accent, okay? I, now I'm an oh, expert. Oh, yeah. No, when you haven't heard a Scottish accent before, it does kind of sound like right. yeah. the other person has marbles I'm in like, their we, mouth. We watch so much British TV now, I have no problem. But maybe not, maybe not when you're no, 10. No, but when I'm 10. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I think the best dinosaur for me goes to the movie Velociraptor because she is such a clever girl. She is such a clever girl. Yeah. And much bigger than the Velociraptors yes. in the book. Yes, much bigger. Mm-hmm. It was funny. They're bigger because Steven Spielberg wanted them, to be, wanted them to be bigger. And then right around the time that the movie came out, they actually found bigger dinosaurs. The Utah yeah. Velociraptors. Yeah. Or Utah, Utah Raptors. Raptor. Yeah. I was like, that's cool. Yeah. Steven Spielberg, Spielberg dreamed made it, it happen. Made it happen. Yeah. Um, makes you wonder what else Spielberg is going to bring to life. Uh, No. So our next section is Aesop Says, uh, which is when we can talk about some of the lessons we learned from this book and movie. Yes. I think we've actually talked about this a lot already, which Mm -hmm. is the dangers of unchecked science. Um, A lot of the lines that Ian Malcolm has in the movie are taken directly from his speeches in the book. They're just heavily, heavily condensed. Yes. But, you know, he talks about, he has has that great line, um, you spent so much time thinking about whether you could, you didn't think about, about whether, whether you should. should. Now, in the book, he Love then goes that. on for, like, a few more pages about yeah. that. But, I mean, that's a great... I mean, and that is, like... And Jeff Goldblum actually does deliver those lines extremely well. Oh, he's a good actor. He plays Jeff Goldblum better than anybody. He really does. <laughs> <laughs> I We're not giving him enough credit. I think he does a really fabulous job as Ian Malcolm, but he's just so Jeff Goldblum. He's just so movie. Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Um, I, I think another theme that we, we haven't really touched on necessarily that I think is stronger in the movie than it is in the book is you can't control nature. Mm. Um, I mean, it is a big part of the book because, you know, the, you know, the dinosaurs start breeding and they spend a lot of time about that in the book. Um, but I think they play it up more in the movie mm-hmm. with all of this, the, the shots that they do. Yeah. Um, especially like, um, you know, they, even though they don't continue the storyline, they do show you that the dinosaurs are breeding in the movie. Um, and then, you know, basically they've, John Hammond comes around at the end saying, nope, we're destroying the park. There's yeah. just, we're like, there's no, there's no coming back from this. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, I mean, he's very different. I mean, in the book and again, in the book, he's a very different character. He's yes. a greedy, nasty little crap of a man. He's horrible. In the book. He deserves to be eaten by poop eating dinosaurs. He really does. He really, really does. But in the, in the movie, you know, and he just is like, you're right. I, this is this is this can't happen yeah like we've lost complete control over this entire thing yeah it's interesting i'd say in the book it's more about with with all of malcolm's series it's more about you can't control the unpredictable Mm -hmm. and i mean nature is the unpredictable i think the movie just zeroes in more on you can't control nature right 
And certainly there's just a visceral nature to what you see in the movie that I think underscores that. I mean, the the storm is so mm-hmm. overwhelming alone, and then you have the dinosaurs and right. that. Exactly, yeah. So I think definitely in the movie it's like, because they play up the storm more than they do in the book, it's like, basically you've got this storm, you've got the dinosaurs running amok, and you're just, you're basically screwed. Yes. That's that's the real morals that we're all screwed. It's true. <laughs> We've covered the theme, so I think it's time we talk about our next episode. Oh, yeah. So, next episode, we will be reading the old classic, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, and pairing it with a viewing of the new classic, Sleepy Hollow, which is directed by Tim Burton and starring Johnny Depp before he turned into a living hat. Um, But between episodes, we thought it would be fun to challenge each other, and also you listeners, to a game of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, but with a twist. So instead of starting with an actor, we're going to start with the current movie's current episode's movie and end with the next episode's movie. So for next time, be prepared to take Jurassic Park to Sleepy Hollow. Do you think we can do it? I think we can. Uh, you know, we didn't plan this, but this episode and next episode are both 90s movies. That's right. So I think there's going to be a lot of overlap in 90s heartthrobs. I agree. I think you're totally right about that. Thanks for listening to Adapted with Anna and Sam. We want to hear from you. Send questions, comments, and your six degrees to Adapted with Anna and Sam, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can post on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook at Adapted with Anna and Sam. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Adapted Podcast. I'm Sam, and I kind of wish Highlander was based on a book. I'm Anna, and I definitely wish Silverado was based on a book. Bye! Bye.